0: Psalm chapter 1, we're going to read the whole psalm. It says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Amen. The help of the Lord this morning, I want to minister from this thought, from seed to fruit. From seed to fruit. Amen. The first psalm is a fantastic portion of Scripture that I I like to read on a fairly regular basis. It contains within it some very powerful principles that if we would grasp them, they can impact the way we walk with God on a day-to-day basis. It speaks to us about somebody that is described as a blessed or blessed man. That word blessed is translated from a word that is also translated as happy. Now when we use the word happy we often have quite a light and superficial meaning to it but when the scripture uses this word it's not speaking about how when we think of when something nice happens and we are happy but rather it's about having an understanding and an awareness of being under the favor of God, of being in a place where we are in a good place with God, in a healthy relationship with God and we are in that place and we feel that blessing, amen. It's a happiness that comes from position, not from circumstance. Too often our happiness is based upon environmental conditions. Whereas as children of God, our happiness should depend upon our position in God, not what's going on around about us. And verses 1 and 2 of this psalm show us that this blessed man's position of being under the favor of God includes things that he does not do and things that he does. Some of the things that the Bible tells us the blessed man does not do is he does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. That means that he does he is not guiding his life based upon the opinions of people who do not know God. His life is not dictated to by what is going on in ungodly society. He also does not stand in the way of sinners. That's not simply speaking about physically standing where sinners stand, but it's talking about having a position or a perspective like we might say this is my stance on a particular issue that means that's our point of view we, we don't stand our point of view should not come from a sinful angle he does not sit in the seat of the scornful in other words to sit here means that it's a place where we dwell or somewhere that we join ourselves to and a scorner is someone who mocks or ridicules wisdom and righteous instruction. And this first psalm lets us know that these things are not found in the blessed man. These things are not found in the person. When it says man, it's not speaking about gender, it's speaking about humanity. These things are not a part of the life of somebody who dwells in the favor of God. But the things that he does do are found in verse 2. It says that he delights in the law of the Lord. In other words, he finds great pleasure and value in God's Word. And he meditates upon it. He considers it as a part of his daily life and it guides how he walks, where he stands, and how he lives. And these two comparisons that we read in verse 1 and 2 are connected with each other because you cannot know what ungodly counsel is if you don't know what godly counsel is you cannot stand not know where you stand if you don't know what is righteousness and what is sinful you cannot sit in the seat of the scornful without knowing what that means and what that is and it is not and so we need to through our loving the law of the lord and our meditating in it and understanding it and growing in it we are able to discern what is righteous what is unrighteous what is ungodly, what is godly, and be able to make those decisions. And this is why we place such a strong emphasis on understanding and knowing the Word of God, because the greater that our delight is in the Word of God, the clearer our ability is to be able to recognize the difference between those two verses. We cannot discern the things that we do not understand. And so as a product of being in this blessed position, This man is then compared to a tree that is planted by the water, a tree that is fruitful, a tree that does not wither or dry up, a tree that produces fruit, a tree that the Bible says that this man, whatever he does, it prospers or it has good outcomes. And then again, we are given a comparison. It says the ungodly are not like this. In fact, they are the opposite their spiritual condition is so dried up and lifeless that they are like chaff. And if you don't know what chaff is, it's what remains after a harvest when the grain is threshed and anything worthwhile is taking out. It is the husks and the stalks and the, the pieces that are of no value that are just dried and they blow away. They have no substance. It's quite a graphic picture. It's a very absolute comparison. One is here and one is there. It reminds us that at the end of the day, or more importantly, at the end of time, when all is said and done, there are only two outcomes. There, are, there is not a varying scale. There aren't shades of gray in eternity. There are simply two outcomes. We are either the godly man or the ungodly man. That doesn't mean we are the perfect and flawless man, but we're either serving God or we're not serving God. We're either fruitful And whatever we do prospers or we're like the chaff that the wind blows away. And in in this present world, that level of being absolute is very unacceptable. But the last time I checked, God is not overly interested in being accepted by society. The opinions of the world don't keep him awake at night. And so we have to let the word of God be our opinions. And so this morning, some of this is fundamental to some of us, so I'm hoping that i will help some understand and maybe remind others of the relationship in our lives between grace faith and our actions grace faith and our actions amen the use of soil and seeds fruit trees vines etc is not common not uncommon sorry in the teachings of jesus and throughout the scripture in both testaments israel is compared to an olive tree. It's compared to a fig tree. The New Testament church is described in the book of Romans as having been grafted into that original tree that God started with in the Old Testament. And I'm certainly no garden. Everybody knows that anything that lives in my garden does so of its own accord. And, but uh, uh, when you graft one tree into another, you take a tree and you you add it to a different rootstock and you hopefully draw from the health of that original rootstock to produce fruit. It's usually done, as far as I understand, with fruit trees. There may be more to it than that. You may know more about that than I do. And in in some of the parables in the Gospels, Jesus compares the condition of the human heart with various kinds of ground or soil. He talks about good ground. He talks about hard ground. He talks about stony ground and he talks about thorny ground. And he talks of how the Word of God is a life-giving seed that is sown into those various kinds of soil and how our hearts respond to that seed is, reflects the kind of soil that we are. There's never a problem with the seed. The Word of God is always quick. It is always powerful. The issue is the kind of soil that that seed finds itself located in. And when our hearts respond to the Word of God in faith, it begins a process of new life that will ultimately produce fruit. And the gospel message is our opportunity to both find and partake of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, and many of you could quote these verses, but they are central to what we're talking about this morning. Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10 it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. We don't work, he works. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Grace is, an, is, is extended towards humanity as an outflow of the love of God. It is extended to us because He loves us. He loves His creation. He loves the image creature that He made. And the incarnation or God becoming flesh together with the cross and the tomb and the resurrection was the ultimate act of the love of God. I've taught it and preached it here many times, but creation really, the the splendor of this planet and all the majesty of creation is simply the backdrop. It is the stage decorations for the ultimate demonstration of God's love. When he spoke and it appeared, he already had the plan of what he would do. He knew that that which he created, that there would come a point when he would put two feet on that ground and become the sinless sacrifice for you and us and you and I. And so this mind-blowing demonstration of the love of God is what brought grace to us. In a simple definition, grace is the unmerited or undeserved favor of God. Remembering that our blessed man from Psalm 1 is positioned under the favor of God. Grace includes more than just the unmerited favor of God. It's also involved in the power that we have to walk with God. It's also involved in the gifts that God gives us. But for our lesson this morning, in essence, we need to understand that we cannot earn it. We cannot earn salvation. I cannot be good enough. I cannot make myself clean enough. There is no list of tasks or challenges that I can complete that somehow I will acquire the salvation of God through as some sort of prize because I've achieved a certain number of tasks or reached a certain level of achievement in any particular area. It is not possible. He is a holy God. And we are corrupt humanity. And that's why our scripture here in Ephesians emphasizes that it does not come from us, but that it is in fact a gift from God. That our works or our actions cannot earn it, and therefore we cannot boast about it. We can take no credit. We can receive no glory. None of it is because of any value that we contribute. All of the credit, All of the glory, all of the praise belongs to Him. And you will find time and time again throughout Scripture, God deliberately sets up covenant with humanity in a fashion that humanity cannot fulfill the covenant by Himself. God always is the way maker. He is always the one that does the impossible, and therefore He is always the one that is worshipped. That's why the Scripture says that no flesh should glory in His presence. It all belongs to Him. It is not of works we cannot boast. Amen. But then in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, it says to us that we are His workmanship, that we are created in Christ Jesus. We are told somewhere else in the Scripture that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. We are created in Christ Jesus unto good works, and that we should walk in those good works or our lifestyle should be one of actions that please the one who gave us this new life. Amen. Because grace, in verse 8, and we'll jump backwards and forwards a little bit here, and hopefully I won't confuse myself or anybody else, but grace doesn't exist in isolation. It is not a magic tablet. It is not, well, in the current environment, it is not a vaccination from sin. It is not some magic thing that just takes over us and we have no involvement grace we are saved the verse 8 tells us by grace through faith it's very important that we understand those two go together because grace provides what is an undeserved opportunity faith produces a response or an action to that opportunity grace says you can be saved Faith says, I believe it. And the two, we are saved by grace through faith. It doesn't say we are saved by grace, full stop. Faith is necessary for grace to be effective. Faith is necessary for the love that brings grace to do its work that God sent it to do. Amen. It's very important that we understand that. We, we know this morning that the message of the gospel is that we must be born again we must be born again john chapter 3 tells us that it tells us that we must be born of the water and of the spirit acts chapter 2 and verse 38 says that then peter said unto them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the remission or the forgiveness of sins and you shall receive the gift of the holy ghost now what makes this verse significant in acts chapter 2 is that after this instruction was given by the Apostle Peter, it became the standard model throughout the book of Acts. It wasn't presented as an option. He said, this is what God says, and that's what they did. That's why we teach it. That's why we emphasize it. It's not because we just happen to like one verse in isolation, but because it flows with and is woven together with the rest of the Scripture. And it is the pattern that was followed and taught and preached and practiced by the early church. Amen. And so when we say, and when, we, when I say we say, when we repeat the Word of God, because our opinion's not worth a whole lot unless the Word of God's involved. But when we say that we must repent of our sins, when we say that we must be baptized in Jesus' name and that we must receive the Holy Ghost, there are some people, that say that we are preaching a message whereby we are being saved by our own actions or by works, that because we do something that we are saving ourselves. But this is a terrible misunderstanding of the Word of God because what we are actually doing is we are obeying by faith. You see, it's the Word of God that tells me I'm a sinner and that I need to repent. It's the Word of God that tells me that he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. It's the word of God that tells me that the promise of the Holy Ghost is for me and that it's for you. I did not die for my sins. That's not, I couldn't take away my own sins. And when I was baptized in Jesus name, I did not wash my sins away. Jesus did that. When I asked him to fill me with the Holy Ghost, I did not fill myself with the Holy Ghost. He did that. So what we contribute is faith. We are saved by grace through faith. We contribute faith. And if you think that you're doing that, scripture lets us know that faith comes from him in the first place. Resident in every breathing human being is the capacity to believe in God. He's made all of us that way. He made us new creatures. We did not recreate ourselves. You can, have a, you can have a makeover, you can go through an image change, you can change your wardrobe, change your lifestyle, do all of those things, but you cannot take away sin. Only the power of the blood of Jesus, the name of Jesus and the spirit of the Lord can make us new creatures, can recreate us. We cannot recreate ourselves. And so it is an illusion to suggest that we are saying that we are doing anything except believing and obeying salvation comes to us by grace and faith responds to that grace the faith that i have comes from him hebrews tells me that he is the author and the finisher of our faith he started it and he will finish we simply choose to participate we choose to take advantage of that opportunity that he has presented us it is jesus from start to finish and it's important we understand that to, to do what the Scripture says is not to save yourselves by your own actions. It's to obey the Word of God by faith. Amen. There's a couple of passages I want to look at this morning, and there, there's, there's a few verses here, so I'm going to ask you to be patient. They'll be on the wall. In Romans chapter 4, starting at verse 1, Paul, to give you a little context, Paul is. He deals with quite a lot of things in the book of Romans, but much of what he deals with is getting people to understand that we are not saved by keeping the law of the, of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, but we are saved by being obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, in Romans chapter 4, this is still part of what he's communicating. And in verse 1 he says, What shall we say then that Abraham... Our Father, as pertaining to the flesh, so he's talking about Jews that were natural descendants, has found. For if Abraham were justified by works, justified means made right in the sight of God. If Abraham was justified by works, then he has whereof to glory, but not before God. If it was his actions, then he can take some credit. Verse 3, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now, to him that worketh, or to him that thinks he saves himself, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, I did it. If I believe that because of my actions I'm gonna, I can save myself, then I get the credit. I'm owed that salvation. Verse 5 says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Amen. So Paul is emphasizing that Abraham believed in God. That's why God considered him righteous in his sight. He believed in God. He had faith. He didn't he wasn't saving himself. He wasn't justifying himself. Then we jump a little further into the New Testament into the book of James, the second chapter of James. We're going to compare these two passages and hopefully make some sense. James chapter 2 and starting at verse 14. I'm going to read about a dozen verses here. It says, What does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? If you come to me and say, Bro, I've got no money for food, I'm hungry, and I just say, Well, God bless you, may God fill your belly and I don't take you to McDonald's, then my compassion for your well-being is not very evident. That's the, McDonald's wasn't there in the book of James, but that's a modern application. Verse 17, Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. James is saying that belief in the existence of God is a great place to start, but it's not enough. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seeest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was, was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And when you read these two passages, Romans and James, it seems they almost contradict each other. Paul is emphasizing that Abraham believed by faith. He didn't save himself with his own actions. James is saying, hey, if all you do is say you've got faith, but there's no actions, how do we know you've got real faith? They seem to contradict each other. In fact, if you're interested in church history, Martin Luther was quite keen to have the epistle of James taken out of the Scripture. Because Martin Luther lived in a time in church history where the orthodox church of the day was very much telling people that they had to do a lot of things to earn their salvation. It was really, without being too cynical, it was effectively a money grab. If you'll give this and give that and pay this and do these things and do those things. And so Martin Luther's passion was against that practice. He was very much about how it was the grace of God and not all these deeds that would save people. And Martin Luther's reaction was good to a point, but it was, he almost overreacted to a point where he said, you don't do anything, it's just grace. And so because of that, he had a real problem with James. Unfortunately, James was in the Bible and James was long dead before Martin Luther came along. But to understand what's going on here, Paul in Romans is teaching that our justification, what's justification? It's being made just or it's being made righteous in the sight of God. It's a part of being saved. Paul is teaching us that our justification must depend upon faith in what Jesus has done for us, not on the works of the law. Remembering the context, he was talking about what the law of Moses said. Paul is saying we have to trust in what Jesus did for us, not on actions that were part of the old covenant. James is teaching us, that when our faith is in what Jesus has done for us, that we will be justified by acting upon that faith or being obedient to the commandments of the Scripture. And what is interesting is that both of these passages use Abraham as their example. They both refer to Abraham. Paul showed that Abraham's faith acknowledged that only God could fulfill the covenant that he had made especially when it came to giving him a son, who we know was named Isaac. Only God could miraculously bring forth the child of promise. James is showing us that Abraham's actions in offering that same son back to God demonstrated faith in God and that his faith could not have been seen without that action. Amen. In Genesis 22 and 18 underlines this idea it's the same chapter when abraham is offering isaac and after he trusts god and does what god asked him to do the lord says to him and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice abraham's obedience was connected to the covenant his faith and obedience were connected to the covenant coming to pass god was saying to abraham i can keep the promises i made to you because you have obeyed me by faith so the passages in romans and james are actually not contradictory but they're complementary when you understand them they go together one is emphasizing that i cannot work my way into heaven the other one is saying when i believe in him i will demonstrate that belief they're not contradictory they're complementary James 2 and 22, we read it already, but just to pick it out of that passage, it says, "Seeest thou how faith wrought with his works, talking about Abraham, and by works was faith made perfect. And a couple of other translations to help us understand that verse in the New Living Translation, you see his faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. The Amplified says, you see that his faith was cooperating with his works and his faith was completed and reached its supreme expression when he implemented it by good works. So we have to understand the difference between thinking we can do things to get to heaven and doing things as obedience by faith. They are not the same thing. It's important that we understand that when we walk with God. So we are saved by grace how through faith faith must be involved you can read hebrews 11 you can't please god without faith it is necessary so that faith is completely in what jesus did for us upon the cross and how he rose from the dead and because we believe what he did we do what he said that's genuine faith a lot of people say oh yeah i believe in jesus James told us the devil believes in Jesus. He's not doing what Jesus said. Genuine faith is when I believe what he did, I will do what he said. Amen. And so getting back to the seeds to fruit idea, because we sort of went off a windy path there. The seed of the Word of God, when it's preached, whether it's from a pulpit, a Bible study, somebody sharing their testimony, however that is shared, the seed of the Word of God is planted in our hearts. And when those hearts are good soil, we respond in faith and new life begins. New life begins to happen. If you remember back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are created unto good works, that we should walk or live in them. Our blessed man, who's an example of what happens when the seed finds good soil, the tree that is planted by the river, the tree that has God as its life source, was never, ever intended to be an ornamental tree or just something to look at. It wasn't a plastic indoor plant. It was a tree that was designed and created to produce fruit. Now, being fruitful as the children of God means that we are being changed from within. On the inside, at the level of our character, at the level of who we are, which then overflows into our thoughts, our words, and our actions. Paul wrote to us in Galatians chapter 5 about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, long-suffering, meekness, faith, and temperance. That's not the scriptural order. That's the order I remember because I learned the song when I was a kid. So that's the order that I remember the the fruit of the Spirit in from when I was in Sunday school. Amen. And he wrote to us about those fruit and that they are a perfect example of of the concept of it being from the inside to the outside our hearts and our minds are changed by being submitted to the spirit and the word of god which over time is then reflected in our responses in our actions and in our reactions and this is a continuous part of our growing as christians i'd love to tell you that after so many months so many years you just hit that point where all nine fruit and all nine gifts and everything else are just running at 100 and everything's perfect. But you will continue to grow until either you die or he comes back. Amen. You don't simply sprout one morning and have fruit to full maturity the next morning. It does not work like that. You know, it's like when you when you teach kids about growing things and they get seeds and they put them in, in a little foam cup full of dirt. They want to see something pop up in 10 minutes. I put that seed in there 10 minutes ago. I watered it. Where's the plant? But that's not how it works. There is a process that takes time. Much in the same way spiritually, as we walk with God, we should learn the Word of God. As we learn the Word of God, we should desire to apply the Word of God to our lives because that's how we become the blessed man. That's how we become the blessed man from someone by learning and applying the Word of God, letting God change us, letting God mold us, letting Him fashion us into His image now what happens is that as we grow in knowledge and understanding we learn how we should live we learn about serving god we learn about loving others we learn about being a part of a growing body of christ and we learn about contributing to that body and that's great and they are all biblical concepts they are all things that please god because we are walking in the good works that he created us to And I want you to know we are so very, very grateful for faithful people who serve in the church. The wheels would fall off very quickly if we didn't have people that were faithful serving in the household and the family of God. But if we are not careful, over time, our relationship with God can become about what we do, not whose child we are. What we do, not whose child we are. And we can subconsciously fall into the habit of measuring our spiritual spiritual condition by our level of involvement. Now this is a subtle deception because God wants us to be involved. He wants us to serve Him and others. Somebody said the church is a battleship, not a cruise ship. There's nowhere in the scripture that being a couch potato is a gift of the Spirit. It's not there. You won't find it but what you do is not your identity it is not your identity it's very important we understand that when you need a tradesman at your house when something's broken or something needs to be serviced you get a plumber or an electrician or some some other kind of tradesman if if it's the first time you've ever met them you may know their name they may introduce them to you themselves to you but their identity to you is their trade When you need them, you say, I'm going to call the plumber. I'm going to call the electrician. Now, if they've come to your house because you keep breaking things, you might get to know them a little bit better and you might know their name. And so that does vary a little bit. But in the general sense, they are the plumber. They are the electrician. We know them by their function. Usually, they are not likely to be inviting you over to their house for dinner or inviting you to their birthday party. You probably won't know their children's names or what kind of pets they have because your relationship with them is their function. And that's okay because you're paying them to do that function. Nobody says you have to be besties with your sparky. That's not the case. They are a tradesman. Amen. And you use them, and that is usually the limit. Although, if you are besties with trade people, it might save you a bit of money. So, that's, that's, you know, be nice to tradespeople. There's a word of wisdom for you. But see, God sees us through relationship, not function. I'm going to say that again. God sees us through relationship, not function. Our function flows from our love for and our desire to serve and please our heavenly Father. To give you some examples, Brother Grant is our men's leader at the moment. The Lord, When Brother Grant prays or comes to the house of the Lord, the Lord doesn't look at him and, and think of him as Northside's men's leader he's grant element child of god and any other any other person here that's involved brother brother peter looks after our sound desk you know the lord doesn't say oh that's sound man the lord says that's my son peter serves me as a sound man god does not see you through function he sees you through relationship he did not go to calvary so you could lead a department in the church he did not go to Calvary so you could teach Bible studies or pick people up or teach Sunday school or whatever else it is that you're involved in. He loves that we serve. That is an overflow. That is not the main reason that he went to the cross. He sees us through relationship, not through function. And it's important we understand that. Amen. And I want us to turn to the book of Revelation, the second chapter. Try to stay with me. I know it's a little noisy upstairs, but that's all right if our kids are getting the Holy Ghost. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation, some of you will be more familiar with it than others. The Apostle John is on the island of Patmos. He's been exiled. He's been sent there as punishment. And During his time there, God gives him visions of prophetic events, especially events particularly around the last days. And John records these visions in what we know as the book of Revelation. And in the first chapter, it says, John hears a voice behind him like a trumpet. That voice tells him, the Lord tells him, to write to the seven churches in Asia. We would probably better understand that as Eastern Europe today because most of them are around about where Turkey is in in how we look at geography today. And John turns around and he sees Jesus in his glory struggles to find the words to describe him. And then Jesus explains to John that this what he saw, because John saw seven golden candlesticks, he saw seven stars in the Lord's hand, and the Lord explains to him that the candlesticks represent seven churches, the seven stars represent the angels of those seven churches. The word angel simply means messenger, and it is usually understood that in this passage it is referring to the pastors or the leaders of those churches seven churches the ones that are responsible for being the messengers so with that as a little bit of context revelation chapter 2 and starting at verse 1 it says unto the angel of the church of ephesus write these things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks i know thy works and thy labor notice those two words works and labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, there it is again, and hast not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Amen. There's a lot in this passage, but the points that I want to bring out this morning are, firstly, this church was told they'd lost their first love. Now, we can talk a lot about what that may or may not mean, but as a part of the remedy for that that the Lord was concerned about, they were told to firstly remember where they used to be, remember their previous position. Remember, we're talking about position in favor with the Lord, the blessed man. They were told to remember where they had fallen from. They were told to repent, and they were told to do the first works. Now, I don't think it's wrong to suggest from this passage that first love and first works are connected. They're they're a part of the same situation. I, I don't believe that first works is speaking about being born again, because you don't repeat that. Repentance is an ongoing part of our walk with God, but we don't get rebaptized. You only ever get baptized once. And you might be saying, well, I've been baptized several times. If you weren't baptized in Jesus' name, the other ones don't qualify. I'm sorry. So biblically, you only ever get baptized once. We get baptized in the name of Jesus. We don't. We receive the Holy Ghost initially the first time, then it becomes a part of our walk with God. First love is not talking about fluffy feelings in our hearts warm and fuzzy and and all that sort of stuff there's there's more substance to it than that and it lets us know in this passage that this church was still laboring that's repeated they're still working they're still doing there's still function that is taking place in this church at ephesus but when i look at this passage i see that their position remember they'd fallen from somewhere their position has changed from favor to fear From favor to fear. Instead of their actions being produced by transformation and love for God, they are working to try to make sure that they're still saved. And this is a product of fear of not doing enough. And people walk with God and they can find themselves in a place where they feel like if they don't do, God will not love. That is not God's thinking. God wants us to do because we love, not to do to earn His love. You can't earn His love. Grace is unmerited. We've established that. And the problem is that when your thinking comes from this perspective, you are trying to change and protect what is within by what you do without. Works, when we try to earn with God, works tries to change us from the outside fruit is a product of change that takes place within there's a big difference between the two it's a subtle yet it's a powerful difference because to the casual observer sometimes it's hard to tell the difference because we're all busy serving god but god is so much more interested in the who and the why than he's in the what now i'm please don't come to me after service and withdraw from everything you do in the church if you do we've completely missed the point of this message But God loves when we serve Him, but He doesn't like it when we think that's how He loves us. Because He loves us enough that He died for us. The Scripture says we love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. He doesn't love us because we earned enough brownie points to get His attention. He doesn't love us because we picked up enough people and brought them to church or taught 87 Bible studies every week or, or cleaned or taught kids or whatever it is we do. We, he does not love us because of that. He loves us before we loved Him. His love is demonstrated. It is commended towards us. There is a subtle difference, but a powerful difference between the two. If we do things because we feel like, well, if I don't do this, God won't love me, we're missing the point of our relationship. And sometimes what happens is when we are born again, we come into His grace and His mercy. We feel His love for us. He fills us with His Spirit. Our lives are transformed, and we want to do anything we can for the Lord. And many of us have that testimony. People say, I'm so glad I can do something in the church. But over time, routine can replace relationship. And when routine replaces relationship, we become functional instead of relational. And God's still happy we're serving, but He's saying you're going to lose your joy, you're going to lose your love, you're going to lose the reason why you do that, and you're going to go home from your busy lifestyle going, whew, I'm still saved. When you could never save yourself in the first place. Mark chapter 12, and I'm just about done. Mark chapter 12, many of you know this passage in verse 28. says, And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, Which is the first commandment of all? That word first, both here and in Revelation, is translated from the Greek word protos, P-R-O-T-O-S. It doesn't mean first numerically. It means first in importance, in preeminence, in significance, in what matters first. And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You've got to get that squared away. There's only one God. But then verse 30 as a part of, it's still the same commandment. It's not number two. Number two is in verse 31, and we're not reading it. In verse 30 he said, "And as a result of understanding that there is one Lord, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind and with all thy strength." This is the first commandment. This is the first works. Four things that we have to love God with. Three of them cannot be seen. Mind, heart, and soul. Strength is demonstration. It lets me know that God is more interested in transforming me within and then it being demonstrated without. He wants, to, he wants us to love Him with our heart and our soul and our mind and then demonstrate it. But it's got to be in our hearts. It's the first love. We love Him because He first loved us. I serve Him because I love Him. I serve Him because I want to please Him. I want to do whatever He wants me to do because He's done so much for me, not because I'm afraid I'll lose my soul if I don't. You know, if I meet with the elders after this morning service and write a letter of resignation as the pastor and just go back to attending church, I'm not any less saved. Now, I may be missing the will of God if that's not what God wants me to do, but my salvation is not dependent upon me being the pastor of this church. My salvation is dependent on me being a child of God and being in a healthy relationship with my Heavenly Father. Me being the pastor of this church is because in my heart, I want to please God because He loves me and I love Him. I don't feel like, well, if I'm not the pastor, I'm going to go to hell. Sometimes when you're a pastor, you feel like pastoring is going to put you there. But the reality is we are in relationship with Him. We serve Him out of love, not out of merit. Amen. His grace reaches for us and our faith takes a hold of it. We obey Him by faith. Our love for Him sends our roots down deep into that rich soil of His Word that is watered by the living water of his spirit and fruit is the product amen from seed to fruit somewhere along the way we get derailed and feel like even though we trusted his grace we've got to earn it whatever you do do because you love him don't do it because well if i you know when you you know we always encourage people to get to the house of God. Don't miss church unless you're sick or there's a good reason. Be in the house of God. But if you if you feel like if I don't go to church, I'm going to be lost, your understanding is wrong. We go to church because we love Him. We want to be with His people. We want to worship Him together. We want to hear from His Word that we might walk closer to Him, that we might be positioned in blessed and favor. It's not, man, if I miss church... You know, sometimes we feel like if we miss church and the Lord comes back and we're not there, we won't make it. That's not accurate. I will tell you that the more you come here, the better chance you have of making it. Not because you're earning it, but because it contributes to your relationship. Because the more time you spend with your Heavenly Father, the more He's able to give you godly counsel, to have you not stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful. Whatever we do, We do because we love Jesus. And that way, it's fruit, not works. And the Bible says, by their fruit, you shall know them. Fruit is produced through relationship. You cannot artificially manufacture fruit. Fruit only comes through relationship. Stand with me if you would this morning. I hope I've helped somebody understand. I hope I've encouraged this a little this morning. God loves you. God loves you enough that he died for you. There's nothing you can do to make to earn that love. Your response to that love enables that love to bring forth the fruit in our lives. That's why 1 John tells us that when we keep his word, his love is completed in us. But we don't earn any of that. And so whatever you do, whatever you do, if you're an usher today, If you work in Sunday school, the music team, you clean the church, you pick somebody up, you're teaching a Bible study, and you're involved in a department, you're, you're you're, you're a prayer warrior. Whatever you do, do it out of your love for the one that saved you. Don't do it because you feel like you've got to earn something with him. It will change your relationship. I serve because I love. It's out of love, not out of fear. I believe there's a lot of opinions about what the first love and the first works is, but that heart relationship is the first love. That doing things because we love Him, not because we're afraid of Him. Amen. Let's lift our voices. and.